It's really good to be able to share God's Word with you again today. It's actually been quite a while. I've forgotten how to, because I was away for just one week, and uh, Mike Taylor graciously preached for me. And uh, then after that, we had that wonderful uh, testimony from J.P. Lucht, and then last week we had Steve Lancaster share with us as well. So it's been quite a while. Usually I try and preach through a book of the Bible, or at least part of a book, uh, but I haven't managed to choose one yet. I'm still working on it. There are so many good sections of, of Scripture. But I have been listening to a number of podcasts. I've been doing quite a bit of reading while everyone else has been preaching for me. So there are a number of different thoughts that have been swirling around my head recently, and I'd like to attempt a sermon series on the theme of enjoying God. Enjoying God. I wonder if that might not seem a strange title to you for a sermon series, Enjoying God. Uh, one pastor that I was listening to recently pointed out that we might not necessarily think of God as someone to enjoy. He said maybe you can in imagine enjoying God's blessings, having your sins forgiven, looking forward to heaven. But you think of God as a king who must be obeyed, or a judge who must be satisfied. He's more of a threat than a pleasure. Or perhaps you feel that God is displeased with you. How can you enjoy God when he doesn't enjoy you, when he's just waiting for you to let him down? And so you keep your distance. You realize that you don't live as you should, and so you wonder whether God really delights in you. Or maybe you think that God is forgiving because that's his job, but you can't imagine him taking any joy or pleasure in that, no affection. At best, he tolerates you. Often, he's frustrated with you. Maybe there are folk here this morning who think of God in that way, and therefore you find it hard to think about enjoying him. Do you enjoy God? Do you like God? We know that we're supposed to love him, but do we like him? Do we enjoy his company? Well, in this series, I'd like us to consider this topic. I want us to look at some ways in which we can enjoy God, activities which will draw us closer to him. But enjoying God, like everything about God, doesn't begin with us. It begins with God himself. So interesting, you don't have to command your children to enjoy chocolate. You don't have to sit them down and say, thou shalt enjoy chocolate, thou shalt enjoy of it on a Friday and special occasions. Quite the opposite, in fact. We have to command our children not to eat chocolate. Most parents of young children shield their kids from chocolate because once they've tasted it, there's no going back. And in the same way, I think that the key to enjoying God is to taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, verse 8. And so as we begin this series, I'd like to spend some time looking at the goodness of God towards us. And when we look at that, I think it's the basis for us enjoying Him. We're going to do so from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. And if you've got your Bible, you might like to turn to that passage this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he says this, As for you, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. Father, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would take your word and apply it deeply and personally to each of us, we pray, in Jesus' name. I met my wife, Michelle, uh, back in 1997 when I was the youth pastor at the Kimberley Baptist Church, and Michelle was one of the members of my young adult Bible study group. Uh, We met in January, and we were engaged in November. Uh, Michelle worked very quickly. And uh, I'm going to be in trouble for this. (laughs) Living in Kimberley, we we thought it would be appropriate for Michelle's engagement ring to be made up of Kimberley diamonds. And I remember going to one of the local jewelers who showed us some diamonds that might be suitable for her ring. Uh, Fortunately, relatively small ones. But I remember him uh, turning out these diamonds, and he did so onto a piece of black velvet cloth. And jewelers show diamonds in this way because it's only against the black background that the true beauty of the diamond shines out. The true color and depth of the diamond can be plainly seen in contrast to the darkness. And something very similar to that is taking place here in these verses. The Apostle Paul shows us what we are now by grace in Christ Jesus by contrasting that with the dark background of what we are by nature and what we were before we knew him. But I think that something even brighter than that shines through these verses, and that is the love and the grace and the beauty of God, which is the basis for us enjoying him. Let's have a look at what we were, what God did, and the difference that makes. Firstly, in terms of what we were, or the human condition, notice that while Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, as for you, there's no moral high ground here. He freely admits in verse 3 that what he is describing applies to all human beings. He says, all of us. He's describing the basic human condition, what we are by nature. And he uses three pictures that are not particularly complementary. First, he says that we are dead. Have a look at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live. The word transgression means basically rebellion. And sin is missing a mark or falling short. So these two words together describe who we are in relation to God, that, that we are rebels and we are failures. And because of this, we're dead. Now, as you look around you, that doesn't appear obvious, does it? Uh, we see the successful businessman. Uh, there's the entrepreneur who's built herself up from the most humble beginnings. There's the beautiful and vivacious Hollywood actress. There's the brilliant academic. Uh, there's the talented author, the super fit athletic sporting hero. None of them appear particularly dead. But in the part that matters most, not the body or the mind, but, but their souls, they are dead. As one writer puts it, they're blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. Second, Paul tells us that by nature we're enslaved. And we're enslaved by three things. Number one, there's the world. Verse two, when you followed the ways of this world, uh, the world here refers to society organized without any reference to God, uh, materialism, the focus on externals and image, the drive to power and riches, sensuality. Paul says that we're enslaved to that way of thinking. N number two, the devil, the second part of verse two, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So not only do we battle against the thinking of the world, but there's an evil personality who seeks to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. And number three, we're enslaved to our sinful nature. Verse three, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. You know, most people don't think of themselves as being slaves. We like to think that we're free. But in reality, we're all slaves to whatever it is that we serve, whatever we think about the most, whatever we're aiming to get hold of, those things enslave us. And because of this, Paul tells us, third, that we are doomed. The second part of verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Whose wrath? Well, well God's wrath. Uh, many people are uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath, we prefer to speak of God's love, and we overemphasize his love and try and uh, hush up his, his wrath. But love and wrath aren't actually opposite. They go together. There was a lady who wrote an essay on this a few years ago. Uh, she was struggling with this idea of how a loving God could at the same time be a God of wrath. And then she remembered a time in her life when she was watching two talented people whom she dearly loved sinking into drug abuse. And she wrote this, I felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them. Can't you see, I said to them, don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You become less and less yourself every time I see you. Don't you see what you're doing to the people around you? And then she went on, 
Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that enslaves and destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in experience. And if I, flawed, narcissistic woman that I am, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition out of love, how much more a morally perfect God who has made them. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So God's wrath at our sin is not incompatible with his love for us. They go together and in fact meet at the cross of Jesus. But, but to sum it up, you, you and I are by nature dead. We're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are doomed, objects of God's wrath. But, <laughs> that's a wonderful word, isn't it? <laughs> it negates everything that comes before it. But, and Paul uses this word in verse 4. Literally, the verse says, but God it's God's amazing nevertheless. We were powerless, helpless, dead, but God. And let's move on secondly to look at what God did for us. What has God done for us? Well, he saved us. Verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. As a child and as a teenager, I grew up on those little Reader's Digest magazines that actually were a lot thicker when I was younger. But I was always fascinated by their stories and particularly the drama in real life. Do you remember those? I remember once reading the story of how an 18-month-old baby girl fell down a well in Texas. She fell down six meters before coming lodged in this tunnel by her elbows. And I read how rescuers worked furiously, nonstop, for 55 hours to dig a rescue tunnel next to the well to rescue baby Jessica. Baby Jessica was utterly helpless. She could do nothing to rescue herself. Her fate was in the hands of her rescuers. Likewise, you and I were once completely trapped, powerless and helpless. What are we to do in that situation? There is nothing that we can do. In fact, Paul is very clear that salvation is not due to our own initiative or ingenuity. Verse 8, this salvation is not from yourselves. Equally, God doesn't save us because of any loveliness on our part. We read that God made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing particularly appealing about a corpse. It's definitely not because of our good works. The Bible is very clear about that. Verse 8, Paul says, This salvation is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let me maybe just expand on this a, a little bit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I don't want to set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through obeying a set of laws, then Christ died for nothing. The, the word righteousness here simply means being acceptable to God. And you may have listened to Tim Keller's sermon a couple of weeks ago where he defined righteousness as a validating performance record which opens doors. 
So when you want a job, you send in your CV. You list all of the qualifications and the skills and the experience that make you worthy of the position. You send it in and you say, look at this, accept me. And every religion and culture and philosophy thinks that it is the same with God. You get out your performance record and you hope that it's good enough to be accepted by God. You say, look at this, accept me. The gospel is the complete opposite of that. The gospel says that God has developed a perfect righteousness, a divine righteousness through the perfect life of Jesus and he offers it to us. And when we accept it, we become so united to Christ that, as Paul describes it here, we are with Christ Jesus, even in Christ Jesus, so that what happens to Christ happens to us. Verse 5, God made us alive with Christ, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, our lives are now hidden in Christ with God. Well, if it's not my own initiative or loveliness or good works that saves me, uh, what is it? Well, God saves us, firstly, in love, verse 4. But because of his great love for us. In fact, verse 4 literally reads, because of his great love with which he loved us. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses looks back over the history of Israel, and he says to the Israelites, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for the, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. Do you see some of the, the redundancy of that verse? Moses says, in effect, God loved you because he loved you. He didn't love you because you were beautiful or big. He, he loved you because he loved you. That's what genuine love is. Now, if a young man were to say to a young woman, why do you love me? And she replies, well, because you've got a nice car and you're in great physical shape and you're a partner in your dad's business and I believe you're in his will. <laughs> that, that's not love. But if she shyly replies, I love you because I love you, that's genuine love. God's love for us is not merely the love of words or thought, but love expressed in action on the cross. Later in chapter 5, Paul says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Secondly, God saves us because of his mercy. The second part of verse 4, God who is rich in mercy. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. In this case, the wrath of God. And God's mercy, you know, is not something that has to be wrung out of him. The Bible tells us that God is rich in mercy. In fact, the Bible tells us that God delights in mercy. Micah chapter 7. Micah says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. 
How do you think God feels about you and me when we ask him for forgiveness? It's not something that he does so reluctantly. He delights to show mercy. Third, because of his grace, verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. If mercy is not getting what we do deserve, then grace means getting what I don't deserve. Forgiveness, new life, friendship with God. And fourthly, it's because of his kindness in verse 7. Paul speaks about his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Again, how does this great salvation take place on God's part? Reluctantly, begrudgingly, impatiently, exasperatedly. I think that many of us have this idea that God is angry with us and basically dislikes us and at best simply puts up with us. And so we're so grateful for the Lord Jesus, his son, who seems a lot nicer than his father and who bears the father's wrath on our behalf. But all of the words that we've looked at describe the actions of God. God's grace and love and kindness come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is still the love and kindness and grace of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you and I are freely forgiven by the love of God expressed in his grace and mercy and kindness. And all that we are required to do today is to hold out our hand and freely receive this from God. Look again at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is simply the hand that lays hold of all that God has done for us. And as we saw at our communion service a couple of weeks back, faith and repentance go together. Imagine a man who's lost at sea, desperately holding on to a few planks of wood. And a National Sea Rescue Institute lifeboat draws near, and one of the crew members holds out his hand. What happens? The man lets go of his planks, stops trusting in them, and he reaches out his hand and is saved. And so someone has used this acronym to describe faith, forsaking all, I trust him. Well, we've had a look at what we were and what God did, but let's consider just for a few moments the difference that this makes. And quite simply, as Pastor Tim Keller used to say, the gospel changes everything. It changes how I view God. God is for you. God is with you. God loves you. God likes you. God created you. He delights in forgiving me and restoring me. I can begin to enjoy him. It changes how I view myself. When people are beating up on me at school and being nasty to me and saying horrible things about me, I remind myself that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And my life is hidden with Christ in God. I am infinitely precious to the creator of the universe who redeemed me and with whom I will spend eternity. It radically changes how I see others. 
I was listening to a pastor recently who was talking about inner city church planting and the challenge of having messed up people coming into church. And he said, well, actually, it's not that much of a challenge because I'm a messed up person. <laughs> and so it's easy for me to welcome other messed up people when I recognize what I am by nature and what God has made me. The beggar who comes into church, I, I may have a better education than him, or a better job, better resources, even, dare I say it, a better theological understanding. But in fact, we stand on level ground here in church because we are all bankrupt, destitute sinners in need of a savior. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. And finally, it changes how I see my good works. Uh, we've run out of time, so I can't go into all of the detail. But notice that although Paul has said it is not by works, in verse 10 he says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is speaking about the fact that we are brand new creations in Christ Jesus. And he says that we are God's workmanship, uh, his masterpiece. Think of some of the magnificent statues in Rome. Think of Michelangelo's Pieta, for example, or his David. Those beautiful statues that are somehow chiseled out of a lump of unattractive uh, marble. We are God's masterpiece. In fact, the word that Paul uses here is the Greek word poema, which means poetry. Each one of us this morning are a beautiful poem. And God has given us things to do. But these good works no longer are my attempt to be acceptable to God. They are his purpose for me in the new life that he has given to me. And they are performed out of freedom and with joy. You know, for years now, I've put hours and hours of study into my sermons. I'm not going to change that because I do want to correctly handle God's word of truth. But I, often after a Sunday service, I feel racked with guilt and misgivings. Was the sermon good enough? I know I could have done better. I know there could have been more illustrations. I know it could have been shorter. Of course I want to do a good job, but my standing before God this morning has absolutely nothing to do with how good a preacher I am. I don't have to come at the end of a week and present my sermon to God and say, here God, this should make me acceptable to you. I'm justified, acceptable to God because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for me. There is nothing that I can do that makes God love me anymore. Nothing that I could ever do that would make God love me any less. And so I trust that just looking at a picture of what God has done for us today would make us think about getting to know him just a little bit more and would enable us to enjoy him. The marvelous message of this passage is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which allows us to enjoy the God who loves us and freely, willingly, lovingly, joyfully gave himself up for us.
Let's pray together.